Welcome to Researching Happy. This is episode 13 um, on the podcast, all about the stories behind the studies of the research world of happiness and well-being. So this week, we are joined by Professor Craig Hassed, um, who is just an incredible resource and expert on all things mindfulness. And you can tell this man is a teacher. He is a true teacher. The way that he is so clearly able to express himself um, about mindfulness, um, it comes as no surprise that he's been teaching this since the very early 90s. Um, so he's definitely um, an early adopter of this stuff, um, particularly you know in the university setting I'm talking about. I think some Buddhists would have something to say about that in terms of the idea of early. Um, but anyway, we have a great conversation. Um, uh, the bit I'm most excited to share, I think, is this nuance between informal and formal practice. Um, and I was very pleased to hear Craig say that this idea of informal mindfulness, so just being more mindful in the moment, um, is extremely valuable, but it's actually practiced by formal mindfulness. So this is not to throw away the formal practice, um, but it is this opportunity now to expand our idea of what it means to be mindful. I'm speaking to you as someone who currently is wearing a set of headphones that aren't plugged into anything because I lost the wire that connects them to um, the computer. These are not Bluetooth or anything, but I just wanted to wear them for continuity across episodes. Uh, I will not be described by anyone in my personal life as a mindful person. Um, more like a forgetful person with their head in the clouds, especially when it comes to keys and wallets and wires and all sorts of other things. So this was really valuable for me, I think. And so if I want to be more informally mindful, I need to be starting to up my mindfulness practice, uh, which is something that I'll start doing. So enjoy the episode. Um, Please share this with someone. I think this is going to be a really hot topic. I think Craig is just incredible. Um, and I think a, a lot of people are going to want to hear his message. So like I say, yeah, share the episode. You can like and subscribe. Um, that really helps us with the the algorithms, apparently. And um, you can support the show at locals.com. And there's a link um, in the video. Support starts from $5 a month. And it's greatly appreciated. Um, but most importantly, send feedback. I really want to continue to improve the show and um, and thank you to all the people who have sent some feedback through so far and just keep it coming. I just want to hear ideas, um, suggestions, criticisms, improvements, just really open. So thank you and enjoy the episode. Okay, so welcome to Researching Happy. We are extremely um, excited to have Professor Craig Hassed uh, joining us today. I hope I pronounced that correctly, Craig. Should have well asked. Done, yeah. That's good. yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so welcome. I've got a brief bio that I've sort of lifted from your uh, from your um, website, Matt, I think uh, which you... I'll just read quickly. Um, so Professor Craig Hassed, OAM, has been working with the Faculty of Medicine at Monash University since 1989. His teaching, research, and clinical interests include mindfulness, mind-body medicine, lifestyle medicine, integrative medicine, and medical ethics. Craig developed and integrated into the Monash Medical Curriculum the, the world-first mindfulness-based healthy lifestyle course called the Health Enhancement Program. He has authored over 100 papers in peer-reviewed journals. Craig was the founding president of Meditation Australia and is a regular media commentator and has published 13 books and 14 book chapters. He co-authored, along with Richard Chambers, the two free online mindfulness courses in collaboration with Monash University and FutureLearn, both of which are rated as, uh, by Class Central among the leading online courses in the world. Craig is the online, uh, sorry, is the director of education at the Monash, Monash Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies, and in 2019, Craig was awarded with the Medal of Honor, uh, the, sorry, the Medal of Order of Australia OAM for Services to Medicine. So. What an incredible career to date, Craig. 
Oh, I hope it was credible. But uh, anyway, if it's an incredible career, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a few things that really stand out for me in the bio um, that I just, I think we can just sort of jump straight into. I think if there's any sort of background that's required, please let me know. Um, actually, I will just ask, maybe if you'd like to just introduce yourself. So you're, you're a professor at the moment. You, you know, how did you begin? I, I, I think you were a doctor at, at some point. You might still be practicing. Yeah, I trained in medicine um, way back uh, at, at um, Melbourne University. But I went into medicine because I had an interest in the mind. And I kind of thought, well, which way do you go? Do you go philosophy? Is that a career path? I'm not sure. Psychology, perhaps um, psychiatry. Um, but I've got to go through medicine to do that. But I, I anyway, I wound up thinking I'll, I'll, I'll do medicine and do psychiatry. And and um, I was a bit disappointed as uh, halfway through the medical course to realise that um, there wasn't a lot about the mind in psychiatry. It was a lot about medications and drugs. And I was just really interested in what goes on up here, how we think, and also mm -hmm. the, the relationship between mind and body fascinated me. So I guess I was a little bit philosophical in my my view, but I decided not to, to go down the psychiatry path, but I maintained that interest and worked for a few years in general practice and then with a particular focus on counselling and stress management and so on. And then um, when I sort of thought about, well, what do I want to do with my career? I, I really thought that there were things that we weren't taught in medicine that we should have been taught. Mm. The mind-body relationship, and I was practising meditation you know the importance of meditation and how that affects our mental and physical health and so I, I can remember seeing an advertisement in the newspaper you know um, for a, a fellowship position at Monash University in the Department of General Practice and I thought to myself all the things I wasn't taught in medical school that I should have been taught oh somebody should do something about that and then this I thought goes boom do something about it. And it's like, what? <laughs> what? This is the last thing in the world I'd ever want to do. But I kind of couldn't ignore that sort of, well, I don't know, maybe it was a calling, but I couldn't ignore it. So I stepped through all my aversions to public speaking yeah. and, and uh, my aversion to academic, um, you know, life, etc., and uh, and got got involved and it's sort of um, grown since then. <laughs> Fantastic. And just wait a minute. I just have to ask one question there. Did you say there was a job advertised for a professorship in the newspaper? No, not the professorship, fellowship. So okay. fellowship okay. in the Department of General Practice. Okay. And, um, that's that's like, still pretty specific to be in the newspaper though, right? Yeah. Well, it, funnily enough, it was. it's the only time in my whole life I'd just finished working at Geelong Hospital, come back to Melbourne, nothing planned career-wise or anything for the rest of my life. And, and I just thought, oh, look, I'll just open the job section of the page. Uh, I'd never done it before, never done it since. And I just thought, I'll just, I'll just let my eyes just move over and just see if anything jumps out at me and um, just with an open mind and as I did and, and that jumped out at me. And, well, anyway, I suppose there it's a pretty good hit rate for, you know, one, <laughs> one look in the job section and then <laughs> yeah. say, Set their course for the rest of the life. <laughs> Goodness. All right. There you go. Okay, great. So, I mean, just to just the mind, the mind body medicine, that was what really jumped out at me when um, I was reading your bio. I mean, there was a lot there, but would you mind just sort of describing what does that, what are we talking about when we're saying mind body? Well, <clears throat> your state of mind, um, what you're thinking, but particularly the emotions are very, very powerful. Whatever goes on in your mind will have direct effects on the body. I suppose you could say a little bit like um, the temperament of the driver will affect the car, how it's driving, how it's revving, how mm. efficient it is, whether it has accidents and all the rest. But this is a very direct relationship between the mind and the body, for better or for worse. So, um, uh, you know, the first time I... It, kind of really was obvious to me when I was I used to do a lot of competitive swimming um, in my teenage years and I think I was probably about 15 at the time and I had some big swimming meets coming up in the old Olympic pool at, in Melbourne and um, I wasn't an Olympic swimmer but um, you know I used to compete you know on a on a you know fairly high standard and um, uh, and in the weeks leading up to these big meets I'd often get really nervous you know I'd 
you know, you'd get a bit anxious and, oh, you know. <clears throat> and um, one day I was sitting at home on a Saturday morning and I'm sitting there, oh, it's only a few weeks away, oh. And all of a sudden I had this reality check. I looked around me and I'm feeling like this, but I look around me and I'm, I'm sitting on a really comfortable chair and Sunday morning and there's dappled light, sunlight coming in through the window and there's birds singing outside. And I realised that there was no reason to be activating this response mm. for where I was. And I kind of got curious and just noticed what my mind had been doing. And I noticed that there was an imaginary me standing on the imaginary starting blocks and an imaginary couple of weeks from now waiting for the imaginary starter's gun to go. And up until that moment, I'd been taking my imagination to be real. And the body translate that into, well, what I would, you know, now call the stress or the fight or flight response. But I noticed that it translated in that response. And I realized that I was in a bit of a dream world at that moment. And I wondered how much of the time I'm in a bit of a dream world. I wonder how many of these sort of negative emotions and feelings and everything else that I experience are actually related to this stuff in my head. And I take that to be real. And um, because as soon as I came back to where I was, that stress response switched itself off. I wasn't trying to relax. It just went, switched itself off. Yeah, yeah. It's like, um, you know, and, and so the, the, that mind-body relationship for me was a no-brainer. I mean, it was just so obvious. Like, how could anybody question it? And, it? and I didn't have language for it. I didn't have science for it. I just, it did not feel good to be activating it like that. And I kind of thought, this is the kind of stuff that <laughs> is not good for your body. And, you know, I mean, over the years, obviously, um, learned a lot more about it. But those kinds of experiences were very important for me. Mm. And, um, and mind you, any, any emotion, you know, you have a happy thought, a happy memory, oh, you know, and you, you get a different effect in the, in the body. It's, it's just the mind and the body cannot be separated. Yeah. Okay, cool. And so thank you for that. And in terms of then integrating that into a medicine, uh, a medical course, um, how has that experience been? You know, what I'm just wondering from, from a, you know, the, the end result of, of, of a GP or a practitioner in some way, what, what are they, what's added to their arsenal, I guess, by, by the understanding that you've embedded in that course? Um, well, uh, teach the students about uh, mind-body medicine. Mm-hmm. So, and there's a massive body of science around that, and it's particular divisions like psycho, neuro, endocrine, immunology, for example. Um, you know how the stress physiology affects the heart, uh, how it can influence the progression of uh, cancer, um, autoimmune conditions. So, there's a whole body of literature. So, one of the first things is just to give the students the science of that. Mm-hmm. And the limitations of the science as well, you know, how, how much do we know? How much can we be confident about what's speculative, mm-hmm. what's been proven not to be so? So try and get a bit of a sense of that. But then to sort of take the next steps, well, what does this mean for clinical practice? So you're a, a GP, you're a cardiologist or somebody else, and somebody's got cardiovascular disease. Then what do you need to bring into the management of that? Yes. That's going to consider not only whether they're smoking or not, or whether they've got high blood pressure or not, or you're treating their lipids or not, or do they need, uh, you know, um, you know, angioplasty or something else. But you're also considering, well, wait a sec, what about the state of their mind? Because if they're getting really angry all the time, then that'll accelerate the progression of their heart disease. So maybe they need some anger management as well as a part of the management of their heart disease. So, so it doesn't progress. Uh, as quickly you know so mind you if the person's got an unhealthy lifestyle smoking and everything else and one of the things that's driving that is their stress yeah um then you've got to help them in terms because the mind is not just affecting our physiology directly it's also that the mind that, that decides what we put in our mouth what we eat or whether or not we exercise etc so so the mind has these direct effects on the physiology but indirect effects on the health because it influences other things like lifestyle so how can you manage prevent or treat a chronic illness without considering the mind it's like panel beating a car the whole time and never giving the driver any driver education i mean it just doesn't make sense 
Yeah, yeah, and I can imagine the difficulty. You know, I think I think we like to simplify things and say, like, you know, um, stress causes these behaviors, which lead to chronic issues. But of course, it's bi-directional. It's happening, as you've just pointed out, it's happening in every direction. So, do you give much guidance in terms of where would be the starting point? Like, if you said you've got the, you know, the anger management um, scenario where they also have an unhealthy lifestyle, like, do you? Is there a sort of a set point where we say this is where we should just start or is it, you know, um, uh, on a, on a case by case basis? Oh, any, any approach to, to therapy needs to be individualized for the particular patient client in mm-hmm. front of you. So always got to, to adapt something that's generic to the particular needs, the particular motivation, um, readiness of the person in front of one to, to, make it effective so you've got to consider the individual um the area that i i spend most time teaching students about not just medical students but we have about four and a half thousand students each year at monash that have mindfulness as a part of their curriculum not as an elective as part of their curriculum and um so 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 teaching you know for example how mindfulness can be helpful or useful in helping to make healthy lifestyle change uh, helping to manage, you know, difficult emotions, anger, etc. Helping uh, as a part of the management of depression uh, to prevent relapse or anxiety. Um, dealing with chronic pain. There's uh, many different therapeutic applications, but mindfulness is uh, probably, I would say, um, the single most useful. But it can be used in conjunction with other things, so other things, CBT and other psychological. Yeah. approaches as well um there's there's many different um psychological approaches but certainly mindfulness can be an enabler um for other approaches as yeah. well but I, I focus particularly on the one that i um firstly <laughs> taught myself initially and have the most resonance with and, and the one that i think is really emerges as a meta skill that can underpin a lot of other skills yeah i, I have a million questions coming from this this is really fascinating I, it is like you said i just want to make a point there that how you say mindfulness can be integrated and it kind of is a meta skill across many psychological um skills uh, my colleagues and i have published a really large systematic review on the most effective ways to build well-being using psychological like you know psychological interventions um you know 400 and something rcts included in the systematic review and the, one of the biggest challenges for us was to pull apart, firstly, the interventions, just because the literature is often not that clearly described. But what do we do with mindfulness? Because, you know, we had a CBT bucket and we have a mindfulness bucket, but then there's mindful-based CBT. Um, and you, there, there's kind of like a positive psychology, multi-component bucket, but most of them have mindfulness. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not sure whether we got that exactly right. I think we did as best a job as, as was possible, but, um, you know, I think even if it's not, um, even if it's not prescribed in an intervention, I think it's inherently a part of this, right? Just sort of having the awareness to stop and take a step back. I think that's often part of most interventions when it comes to health or psychological health. Yeah. And even with something like CBT, the the ability you know in CBT of standing back from your thoughts, mm. looking at them, examining them, the merits of them, you know, choosing them, leaving them alone, you know, depending on whether they have merit or not. I mean, even that's bread and butter mindfulness. Mm, you know, exactly. the ability to stand back, the metacognition, the ability to to observe thoughts without being drawn in them. So, so even the most valuable part of CBT may actually be something that's entirely consistent with mindfulness, which is not to invalidate for a moment the value of CBT. No, yeah. Um, but it just means that it's very hard to define mindfulness. There's an old old story. I'm not sure where it came from, but it's a kind of story that's used in a lot of Eastern teaching traditions about these people that, you know, these guys all get blindfolded and they get taken to to an elephant. They don't know what it is, but they're blindfolded and, and they're all asked to sort of, you know, feel the elephant. So one's feeling the leg and says, oh, it's a tree trunk. Another one's feeling the belly and it says, oh, I don't know, it's a, it's a great big, you know, <laughs> um, you know, that or something. I don't know. One's feeling the trunk and says, oh, it's a big snake. And another one's feeling the tail, says it's a brush. And, you know, that, that, anyway, they're all feeling a different part of the elephant. 
And they all start arguing. The elephant's this. No, it's not. It's this. It's this. It's this. And um, and in a way, they're all kind of right. But at the same time, they're all kind of wrong as well. And each one has a very limited perception, you know. And it's a little bit like that with mindfulness. You know, you look at it, it's attention training. Well, it is, but it's not just that. Oh, it's attitudinal training. Yeah, oh, it's an exercise in metacognition. Mm. Oh, it's an exercise in non-attachment. Uh, it's an exercise in self-compassion. Yeah, emotional you know, so, regulation, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, uh, and people argue, well, what is mindfulness for a start? Well, it's all of those things. Um, and, but it's not just any of those things. And which part has the effect? And and can you take one part out and and divorce it from the other parts? Um, probably not. Um, so uh, at the first positive psych um, uh, conference years ago, I was invited to come up and give a, a keynote on mindfulness. So where does it fit within positive psychology? And I called it a multifaceted diamond because <laughs> you look at it from every angle and it looks different. Nice. And so um, it, it always looks different, but it is one thing, but it's got many different facets. And um, so although on one level it's many different things, it is one thing as well. So it's a, it's a bit of a paradox in a way, but um, yeah, so that's, I think that's one of the things that makes researching it. And then, well, you're, you're trying to sort of look at other interventions and there's kind of mindful elements in there already. And, you mm-hmm. know, so it makes it very tricky. I'm sure doing your, uh, your uh, systematic review would have been uh, very challenging. Yeah, it was. It took us a fair while, and that, that's okay. I think it's always the case, and isn't it, when you when you are looking sort of from above on all the papers that are out there, you do start to pick up the patterns. and And I think, unfortunately, um, word counts in in journal articles is one of the biggest issues because people just can't actually explain exactly what was in their intervention. Um, but anyway, that's that's a, that's an aside. Going back to the students, um, you said there are. 4,000 students a year going through mindfulness at Monash University. Was that right? About four and a half. Four and a half thousand. So, I mean, just firstly, how difficult just in, I know that universities are sort of notoriously slow places um, just in general. Um, How hard was that to get, you know, to get that embedded across the university? I I assume that you would have led a lot of that effort. Uh, Yeah, I guess, um, the work uh, I was doing initially with the medical students, so medical students, you know, it part, became part of the um, the core curriculum on mm-hmm. a small scale from 1992, and then it kind of built up, and then it went to another level in 2002. And we started, you know, um, uh, looking at the data of the outcomes, the effects of the program on the medical student well-being, and um, we found <clears throat> that. Um, after that had the training, we didn't see these big spikes in stress and, really? and depression and anxiety, et cetera, that, that all the research has shown. Our medical students, if anything, um, after that had the program, but immediately prior to mid-year exams, when we measured them again, everything about their mental health and well-being had significantly improved compared to a low-stress period of semester before the training. And mind you, we didn't have a randomised controlled trial because all the students were getting it, but yeah. all we could say is, well, this is different. <laughs> this is not what you expect. So other other faculties kind of were looking at what we're doing or, or within the medical faculty, um, you know, medicine, nursing, health sciences. So I you know, got contacted by the physios. Could you do something for us and, and um, OT students? Now, it doesn't mean that all those students have a six-week program, for mm-hmm. example. It, it might mean that uh, many of them might have a one or one and a half hour or two hour workshop or seminar, you know, in a large group. Um, Some of them, they learn online, others face to face. Um, So, but at least it's on the radar and that there are other resources they can go to that they can learn more about if they want to. Um, But at least it's on the radar and, um, uh, and students learn that there's something they can do for themselves. We don't set up these in-curriculum um, uh, interventions, if you like, or, or to be interventions for yeah. major mental health problems. Um, although we suspect when there's a you know proper rollout of a program, well-trained, 
tutors delivering it who have mental health um, credentials and mm. <clears throat> experience in mindfulness, teaching it well. So although we, we kind of sense that it enhances mental health and well-being <clears throat> for students who are having significant mental health issues, and, and obviously there's a fair few of those, so, well, this might be supportive, it might be helpful, what you're getting in the curriculum, but, you know, you need to see a trained health professional yeah. and have some more personalised care. Um, so very often the in-curriculum um, sort of delivery helps to sort of triage students and raise those issues in their awareness and help them to seek help if they need it. Yeah, incredible. And I can imagine that... Um, I can imagine, I don't know whether there's any evidence to support this but um that idea that students in particular could normalize a level of distress that is actually um not healthy and and after a certain amount of time just rec not like you know basically forget to recognize that um this is not you know healthy or 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 um or you know sort of normal and that even a, a quick session on mindfulness might actually help to acknowledge that in in, in the sense of your sort of triage program is that something that you would support or have I got it yeah. wrong? It does. I mean, mindfulness primarily is all about awareness. Mm. So it makes students aware of things. And one of the things, if, if it's core curriculum, if it's in curriculum, the teaching is only ever offered, underpinned yep. with the evidence, uh, the, the particular applications of it, which might be one thing for a trainee doctor or a slightly different thing for a trainee physio. Uh, or something slightly different for uh, pharmacists or engineers yep. or MBAs. So different aspects of it um, that, that need to be emphasised um, for those, you know, particular groups. Um, so, but, um, uh, you know, so we give them the evidence, then some of the application, how do you apply this in your life? Uh, but at the end of the day, whether a student practices the practices or you know, uses it in their life, etc. That's totally their choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, mind you, questions about science or the applications might come up in exams, uh, etc. So we expect that the students will know some of the basic information, etc. But it's always got to be, as far as I'm concerned, up to the student themselves to say whether they want to practice it or use it, etc. Mm. We find that over ninety percent of the students when they get the training, actually do use it. Um, right. And that's not a self-selected group. That's across the whole um, uh, cohort. But we find that about 90% say they do use it um, because it's made relevant to things that are important to them. Wow. And is that training, is that the, the sort of the more formalized program you're talking about or even just the once-off workshop? Uh, that's, uh, I'm quoting data from the looking at the medical student program, oh, okay, yes. program, yeah. et cetera. I think probably the number is going to be a bit lower for the students who might just have a one-off session. Yep. Maybe half of them will walk out and say, I'll start to use things that made sense to me. The other, There might be another, you know, 30 or 40% who walk out and think, oh, that was interesting. Oh, I should do that someday, but don't. Sure. <laughs> it's probably always going to be 10% who walk out and say, oh, I just didn't get that or... Or some students quite possibly a little bit confronted by, you know, turning the lights on, as it were. It's like, you know, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And got to respect um, students' boundaries always, I think. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that must feel so valid. You know, it's vindicating, I guess, almost for yourself, your own experience from, say, when you were 15, uh, thinking about the swimming pool. Now you've sort of... It doesn't take, it's not extremely quick, you know, 1992 to 2002. Um, but what a, what an achievement. And so, and, and I guess that's even culminated now into this, the new center. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the center. Well, Is that sort of the next progression? Like, you know, it's getting bigger and bigger, the, the movement. Yeah. And, and not just mindfulness um, as well, because of all the work, that was happening in the mindfulness um, space. And so this had been going on for a number of years and and um, and communicating it and teaching it in a way. Um, and there was a kind of, Monash had developed a bit of a, an international reputation for doing this uh, right. and doing it well. Um, but there was a, a philanthropist who had a very strong interest in meditative, contemplative practices. And, 
and felt that, particularly in Australia, but also around the world, really, that this is not getting enough attention. Mm -hmm. So contemplative science, uh, contemplative neuroscience, for example, contemplative practices, this is something that the world really needs. Yeah. Kind of a collective waking up and being aware and and a collective kind of emotional regulation, <laughs> if you like. <laughs> um, so we need it on a large scale, not just an individual scale. And um, so he approached um, uh, myself uh, at Monash and, um, and, uh, and this is Martin Hosking. Um, he's uh, um, so a philanthropist, but also at the time was the um, CEO of Redbubble. And um, so, and he wanted to sort of in his retirement uh, although he hasn't fully retired yet, in his retirement to dedicate his life to philanthropic work. Wow. So wonderful uh, man. But anyway, we put together a proposal. And um, and at the time, so I'm very much involved in the the contemplative, the educational side of things, mindfulness. But um, in terms of putting together the proposal, um, cross paths with uh, Professor Jakob Howey and his um, whole field of interest, a professor of philosophy, but also has a strong interest in neuroscience, consciousness science, etc. So he's doing fantastic research. And so the center can't just be educational. It's got to have very strong um, focus on research. And the, the Dean of the Arts faculty was just so supportive um, for, for bringing this center to Monash. And and the chancellor and the vice chancellor got right behind it. So we had just wonderful high level support. So yeah. I guess it's a Monash was very fertile ground for, for this. So uh, it's embedded within the Faculty of Arts. Uh, I still have a footprint in medicine, but this is uh, within the Faculty of Arts. Um, Professor Howie, um, already being in the Faculty of Arts, um, is a wonderful uh, director for the, the centre. Uh, myself, I'm the director of education but just a superb team of people. So the Monash Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. So, yeah. so now it's uh, it's expanded enormously. So developing full semester-long uh, elective units that students can do in contemplative studies, um, uh, postgraduate units, uh, short courses online. Um, so the the biggest challenge is just to keep up with the the level of interest and demand. So it's isn't that incredible. If I had to have a problem, it's a good one to have. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, just it's inspiring. It's it's amazing. Uh, and and the thing we you know sort of said sort of off air beforehand that I was saying you know one of the sort of the criticisms of positive psychology has been that it is in a way sometimes two dimensional. I think I saw um, someone writing an article recently, sort of sort of um, you know lovingly say that it's it's still shallow as a field. Um, and I think when I look to something like your center, it's just so, um, I'm enthused, I guess, because I see, like you say, philosophy has a place, religion has a place. Um, I think I saw social work, I saw um, cognitive sciences, neuroscience, like it's just, you know, that's the opposite of, of shallow, basically. Um, and so exciting. And uh, I wonder whether, how do they, do they naturally fit together these, you know, normally multidisciplinary research has its challenges, um, and these are pretty multidisciplinary in, in the sense that there's some serious diversity in that group. Mm. Oh, incredible diversity. But that's what makes it such a fascinating place to be. I bet, yeah. Everybody's got the kind of mentality that they're, they're interested in what other people are doing. Um, they're sort mm. of aware of the interconnectedness of things. You know, I mean, it's like so many of our sciences and medicine would be a classic example you know I, i'm just inter interested in the liver <laughs> or i'm just interested in yeah. kidneys yeah or i'm just interested in you know big toes i don't know as if it's not connected with everything else yeah um barry commoner was an environmentalist uh, ecologist in um uh, pretty prominent you know around the middle of the last century but um he had these four laws of ecology but the first one was Everything is related to everything else. Mm. And that is a, well, I would say that's a much more holistic approach, not just to ecology, but to science more generally. So this sort of sense that everything's, so you, you can't divorce an individual from the society they live in. You can't divorce the, the body from the mind. You can't divorce, um, you know, so all of these 
interdisciplinary conversations are fascinating because everything's interconnected. Now, you might focus on the particular thing that you do or the thing you're interested in, the thing you have expertise in, but you're aware that there are connections. You know, the the brain is not just a whole lot of cells doing their individual... They're synapsing with each other. It's uh, And it's a little bit like that as well, that there's all these synapses mm. and connections, uh, communication, the, the lab meetings each week where somebody is presenting their, their research. And it's not just people in that niche area come along, it's people from all different disciplines and they ask questions, philosophical questions, practitioners asking practical questions. Yeah. How do you deliver that? And so it's a, it's a much more interesting place to be and who knows what the potential of it all is but uh all i know is that uh i don't know it's a it's um anyway it's 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 a very good place to be yeah you must be so proud i i we've this has come up you know there's only i think this is um i gotta stop guessing what episode numbers these are because i always forget but um whatever i think it's 13 um we it's come up a few times that, you know, we don't really need more studies asking the question, does mindfulness work? You know, in a really yes, no answer. I think, as I'm sure you would agree, we need to be understanding why does it work or for whom does it work in what context, what circumstances. And so there's a, you know, there's that kind of idea of the black box, what's in the black box of mindfulness, what makes it work? You know, if this was a pill, what was the active ingredient? Um, do, do you sort of endorse that line of questioning? It, first of all, yeah, and, you know, how does it work? Why does it work? To what extent? Uh, and also to raise the important question, are there situations where it shouldn't be used or yeah. should be used with caution? Yeah. Uh, or are there limitations to its use? Um, and so, you know, it's um, there are still questions to be answered. And, and, and when people um, practice it, for example, how much formal practice? Yeah. How much... Um, Meditation practice, is there an optimal dose or is the dose different for different conditions? So there's still certainly um, things to discover. Um, But just looking at, um, uh, too, there's an interesting debate opening up saying, oh, well, you know, mindfulness and performance, does it help people to function better or perform better? And some research is, you know, sort of coming out that, well, it helps people with stress and distress and to uh, feel calmer, etc. Um, and then they perform better. But it's not what the mindfulness does. It's it's because it helps with the distress, which okay. is inhibiting performance. Well, that's that's something that hasn't been fully answered, but that's an interesting question. How mm-hmm. does it help people to function better? I kind of think, well, maybe, maybe it helps people to... It, it's a little bit like you're driving your car and you've got a handbrake on. And um, and mindfulness takes the handbrake off. So, oh, gee, the car's performing better. <laughs> oh, it's, it's not that the mindfulness helped the car to perform better. It's just that it took the handbrake off. Well, I don't, I'm not quite sure what the difference is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but the handbrake, you've had the stress and so on. Because I, I noticed when I was <clears throat> teenager at school and at university, when stepping into an exam room, if stressed and worried and et cetera, function a whole lot better i kind of realized got to cultivate a calm attentive state of mind to take into that exam room Mm -hmm. calmer but more focused you are um, then the better you function so i used to cultivate what i would now call mindfulness because i didn't have that language for it when i was 16 17 etc but i i kind of realized that's what i was doing so i could step in and be calm and focused in an exam so I actually quite enjoyed them. I didn't find exams stressful because I suppose I spent my time cultivating that state of mind. So this sort of relationship between that and performance. So what's going on in the black box? How does it do that? Don't know. All you know is that something goes in one end and something comes out the other end and it's very useful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And and I mean, do you do you feel well placed? I the funders don't let the funders listen for for a minute. But does the center? Do you feel like the center is well placed to be answering questions like that? It seems to me that that multi, that combination of disciplines that you have there and an openness to collaborate must be um, at the forefront of answering those sorts of questions. Yeah, and and not just ourselves, but collectively, you know, around the world, a lot of people are examining these questions. So, 
to be a part of the conversation. But the thing I'm particularly interested in is applied. Mm. So there's the knowledge there. Um, but how is it applied? How can you help people to apply it in ways that are relevant, accessible, um, uh, and and help people in the things that are important to them? You know, you could have, I don't know, we have about 500 first-year medical students each year at Monash. So 500, and they've probably got 500 individual reasons why this might be relevant to them. Mm-hmm. One's trying to get to sleep at night. One's trying to focus when they're sitting at their desk because their mind's out the window. Another one's trying to manage their exam anxiety when they step into OSCE exams. Another one's, um, you know, just trying to engage better with their friends when they're out because their mind's always somewhere else. Yeah. You know, so... Uh, um, so there's a lot of different reasons. So it's just got to be made relevant and practical, sure. accessible, um, and then you know people tend to use it. So the communication, I'm always interested in the applied side of it. But from an evidence point of view, there's the evidence of what all the science shows. But from a learning point of view, the evidence from our own direct experience is very, very important. So in helping people to learn from their own direct experience um, in support with what good quality evidence says is, uh, you know, from uh, research, I think they're both very important. Mm. Yeah. Okay, great. And so on the topic of implementation, you know, what's your what's your response to, I, I think that I, I don't remember the authors or, or the really much about the study, but I think there was a big paper that came out of the UK that kind of, it felt to me a bit gleefully suggested that, you know, um, mindfulness in schools does not work. So mindfulness, you know, stop talking about it is kind of the sense that I got from the paper. You know, what's I, I can see that there are lots of subtleties that are, are overlooked in a study like that. You know, obviously, like you say, implementation quality, um, uh, you know, fidelity to the program, who was teaching it, in what situations, that sort of thing. What's your response to those types of papers? Well, if it's the paper I think you're talking about, that was a well-designed, uh, well-delivered, um, uh, you know, study. So, and and really, you know, good people, smart people doing it. Yep. Who have an understanding of mindfulness. So, you know, so something like that you can't just, oh, well, no, these other studies show something mm-hmm. different. Ignore that one. We can't ignore things that that um, don't fit in sure. with you know a narrative. So I think that studies like that are really important to get interested in, to get curious about, to actually have a look at. So why did it happen? And one of the things that's interesting to look at in that study, for example, was that very few students practiced what they learned. Yeah. So they had classes. They tried to train up the teachers and, um, you know, so and and they rolled out an intervention in a whole bunch of schools. Um, but the students, very few of the students actually applied what they learned. And uh, and even when they did a sub analysis of looking at, well, if students did actually practice and apply what they learned, did it have no effect for them as well? Well, no, they actually found for those who, the, the small proportion who actually used it in their day-to-day life, they got significant improvements. But mm-hmm. the students who just kind of went through the program and, you know, yeah, whatever, you know, and uh, at the end of it, no no particular improvement for them. And it'd be a little bit like, you know, maybe you've got a, a physical exercise intervention. And so you get a whole bunch of kids or students and you put them through uh, an exercise program, but none of them do any exercise outside mm-hmm. of the half hour once a week when, you know, you got them there. And at the end you say, no, nah, they're not physically fitter than they were before. Their aerobic fitness is no better than it was before. Exercise doesn't work. No, 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 no. That's a that's a, an incorrect conclusion. If you practice the exercise, it works. In the same way, I think if you practice mm-hmm. mindfulness, it works. The challenge is, the real question is, how do you effectively deliver it yes. to make it of interest, to engage students, to help them to apply it in ways that are important and relevant to them? So it's, it's really, I think, the, the, the important message for me, looking at, say, the paper I think you're referring to, is that the real questions are about how do you deliver an effective program? Yeah. It's not, a, it's not a, um, a question so much about whether mindfulness works or not. It's just like, 
how do you deliver an effective program that's going to work? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, fantastic. I, I guess maybe even my my interpretation of the response does come maybe from more like social media and people's comments on LinkedIn, you know, that, that have an axe to grind one way or another, I guess. <laughs> so it's probably um, was unfair of me to put that on the authors themselves and more in the response. Yes. Well, um, the Empire Strikes Back kind of thing. You know, there was an outbreak <laughs> of awareness and we've got to shore it up again. We can all just go back to living on automatic pilot. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> what a beautiful world that sounds like. Um, not really. So then this takes us then to um, the bit that I was really, really excited when I saw um, your paper on this. That informal versus formal um, practice of mindfulness you know, tell us, tell us all about it. Like, is, is that your answer um, to the question you just raised of, you know, at the moment, what's the best way we know to get people to actually be practicing this thing? Yeah, I think this is a really important topic that there hasn't been nearly enough research on. And in teaching and delivering mindfulness interventions, there's not nearly enough focus on. Um, If I go back to why I teach mindfulness in the way I do, is because it was very much grounded from my own direct experience. So when Mm -hmm. I I noticed when I was trying to sit down and study and my mind had tiptoe off to, how am I going to go at the end of the year? What if I don't get these marks and into this course or I fail or I got to sit something or, you know, what if I get thrown out? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I love that expression of tiptoe off, by the way. Yeah, that's right. The mind, and, And all of a sudden I'm, you know, I'm sitting at the desk and I'm not taking in what I'm reading because I've wandered into a world of pain, of worry and rumination. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't control the future. I, only, I can only control now. So paying attention while I'm studying, giving myself as an intern, you know, doing a 64-hour shift without a break, like that's kind of, that was a weekend on <laughs> for when I was an intern. And then you had your normal working week either side of that from... Goodness. And I just realized that just walking, I didn't have the language for it, but just walking mindfully down the corridor from one ward to another was two minutes of mental rest. So just to walk mindfully gave me mental rest to help me to be calmer and clearer to step into the next complex clinical situation. So this informal practice of mindfulness, to be mindful while we're doing something, was kind of what I realized was so important. The meditation practice, the formal practice of mindfulness helps us to do that Mm. better. But in the teaching of mindfulness, so when we're teaching the students, like when you're sitting with a patient, where's your attention? Are you listening to what the patient's saying? Or are you having a little conversation with yourself about what am I going to have for lunch? You know, or um, or something happened earlier in the day, or I don't know, I'm I'm going away on the weekend. That'll be interesting. You know, it's like... and. So where's your attention when you're with the patient, when you're driving your car, when you're eating your food, right? Or as a, uh, you know, a medical student, for example, you're, you're taking blood for the first time using a sharp needle trying to find a person's vein. Where's your attention when that needle's going in the person's arm? Because if your attention's on, oh, no, can you kill people with one of these things? I don't know. You know, it's like then your attention's not on the job. So this applied mindfulness, communicating, doing a vena puncture, driving your car safely, and there's all you know evidence on this stuff. So it's this informal practice of mindfulness that matters. And it, and it surprises me. I can remember taking a, a mindfulness retreat one time for um, you know health practitioners. And somebody came up and said, I've been practicing yoga and meditation for 20 years, but I, it had never occurred to me to take it off the mat off the yoga mat and back into my day-to-day life. I, it had never occurred to me. <laughs> and it's like, so we teach the students about the really important informal practice of mindfulness. That other mm. 23 hours and 50 minutes in the rest of the day, where's your attention then? So if you want to get better at doing that, then take the attention circuits of your brain to the gym for maybe 10 minutes a day, for example. And so that you will start to notice more often when your attention goes off and find it easy to bring your attention back. So give those attention circuits a workout. Do some reps. Wow, then. Yeah. And so now, and I think that um, for a lot of programs that don't engage people very well, students in school or in university or, um, uh, or people in you know, corporate environments, is that it's just about the meditation. 
And we kind of, why do I want to practice that? What's that about? I don't know, it doesn't make sense to me. I've got stuff to get on with. There was stuff I'd rather do. Why sit here doing nothing? And so if they don't understand what they're doing when they're practicing it, and then how they take that out and then be able to focus in day-to-day life, they won't engage very well. Mm. And I think that happens a lot with programs that, uh, you know, are given to, you know, whole of school programs, etc. that um, uh, you got to know why you're doing it. you got to have a reason to do it, and it, it's got to be relevant to your life. you got to, ah, join the dots. And as soon as people do that, in my experience, the vast majority are ready to um, to get on and start using it. Great. And I yeah, I, while you were talking, I was thinking of, I think there's that old image of like an escalator next to a staircase and, uh, you know, at the, at, the, at the base of a gym and all the people who are getting ready to exercise jump on the escalator and up they go. It's like, <laughs> it's exactly like you're saying, you're there to exercise. You can actually apply little micro exercise moments in the rest of your, in the rest of your day. I wonder when you're asking people, you know, engage your um, attention muscles, basically, um, are there sort of triggers that you that you recommend for people to sort of switch on, or is it is it so highly unique that um, that it just kind of comes naturally? Well, look, any any moment, any situation, there's an opportunity to be mindful, um, and so I don't necessarily. Um, limit it to oh just be mindful when you're meditating and when you're brushing your teeth Mm. um for example you know so now doing a mundane activity in a mindful way can be very very useful um and it will help to train attention um for those less mundane things i can remember the night before i I gave the first keynote address that I've ever given at a conference. And for somebody whose biggest fear in life is public speaking, this was, you know, going to be an interesting and challenging kind of situation. And um, and it was going to be about mindfulness and stress management. And I was washing <laughs> the dishes the night before. And as I'm I'm washing the glasses with the dish mop and so on, and I'm feeling a bit, oh, a bit nervous and, you know, oh, you know. And I can remember thinking to myself, oh, I hope I'm in the present moment tomorrow. <laughs> all of a sudden what <laughs> i hope i'm in the present moment tomorrow i'm not going to find out till tomorrow if i'm in the present moment but it all of a sudden it made sense to me if i want to have a better chance of being in the present moment tomorrow when it seems to matter i should practice being in the present moment mm. like now because this is the only moment i can practice it in. which meant pay attention to this glass this dish mop feel the water hear the sounds and so so I start paying attention to washing the dishes. And next thing I notice is I'm not feeling anxious anymore. The stress response has switched itself off and so on. But I find that paradoxically, just being mindful in mundane moments mm-hmm. and helps one to step on up onto the, the dais, up onto the platform in front of the, and to be present then. Um, so in the moments that it does matter, that's why an elite athlete, for example, and I could name you a lot, We'll practice this off the court or off the ground so that when they step onto the ground, they're in the moment that got their attention, their eye on the ball, not on what if I stuff it up or what if I don't get a you yeah. know, contract yeah. or win. So this sort of um, application, this applied mindfulness, if you like, is, is really the important message. And any moment in our life is an opportunity to, to be mindful and to be present. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess I'm trying, I'm wondering whether I can extract from you some sort of um, like some cues or some sort of coaching tips. Like I'm hearing you say things like, you know, it's, it's paying attention, reminding yourself to pay attention. It's noticing maybe senses or even just the idea of noticing yeah. um, curiosity. Are there these sorts of cues that yeah. you give in your courses? All right. Well, say just, um, I'll give you a prescription. Right. Okay, so great. You are having a consultation with the doctor, although last time I actually wrote a script for somebody it was a long time ago. <laughs> but um, so, but from a formal practice point of view, starting dose five minutes to be taken seated twice a day before meals. Right, so maybe early in the morning before breakfast, sometime maybe early in the evening before mm-hmm. dinner, mm-hmm. but either side of the main part of your day. So five minutes twice a day. What you can also do is have an as required or PRN order of um, 
15 to 60 seconds of mindfulness um, to be taken as required throughout the day. So, for example, before logging on to a meeting or an interview, might just have 30 seconds to stop just to be present and then step into the next thing. Uh, if you're a psychologist, seeing one client, you've written up the notes, about to go and get the next client, just give yourself a few moments just to be mindful so that you can step into the next situation with your attention fully engaged with the next person um, for whom this is an important moment in their life, mm -hmm. speaking to you know, a psychologist. Um, so that's the formal practice. And then in day-to-day -day life, to be mindful as one goes about one's life. Now, one of the, the cues is if we start to practice some regular mindfulness meditation and start to get curious in our day-to-day -day life, we will start to notice how distracted the mind is. Like if people start practicing this and then, I don't know, you know, a week or two later say, my mind's all over the shop. But my mind, you know, <laughs> if you're more aware of how distracted the mind is, mm -hmm. then that's a sign of progress, not that you're getting it wrong. Yeah. And um, so people start to become more aware of how distracted the mind is, but also start to pick up much more uh, often about when the body's activating little tensions, little microactivations of the stress response, etc. So you start to get awareness of mind and body. When the mind's off in default mode, off in its own little world, oh, that's a cue. You notice, oh, bring your attention back to where you are. You notice that the body's tensing up, etc. Well, if you pay attention, you probably, your mind's already flash forwarded to the future. I've got so much to do, so many deadlines. Ah, oh, just come back to what you're doing now. One job, one moment, one step at a time. So it, these are the cues that you pick up by noticing your state of mind and distraction, etc., and also the state of body. Every time you notice, come back to where you are. Now, being present doesn't mean, oh, so I can't plan and prepare for the future. By all means, you can. But you just do it grounded in the present moment. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that is tricky to spot is that, you know, worry for example, likes to impersonate things that are useful. So worry pretends to be planning and preparation when it's actually just worry pretending to be useful. And if you notice planning and preparation, and if you're doing it mindfully here in the moment, focused on planning and preparation, you'll feel productive. You'll get stuff done. Things will start to get organized, etc. But if you notice mind doing its pretending to be planning preparation when it's actually, oh, how's this going to go? What if this happens? Oh, maybe I should double check this. And all. You'll notice that the stress response is activated. You'll notice a sense of foreboding, and etc. Mm -hmm. And, oh, there it is again. <laughs> Worry pretending to be useful. <sighs> Just come back and get my attention back on the one thing I need to do now. Okay, so, so this is an important skill, and if we practice it, we'll get better at it. If Fantastic. we practice worry and distraction, we get better at that. That was extremely useful. So thank you. Thank you, Craig. Yeah, and, and as you were talking, I was reminded of, um, I've mentioned him again a couple of episodes in a row now, I think as well, but Professor Lindsay Odes at Uni Melbourne talking about well-being literacy and, and his big claim there is the importance of language. And I think, like you just said, the, how powerful it is, I think if I'm applying Lindsay's work correctly, how powerful it is to be able to, almost to have that tagline in, in your mind of uh, worry pretending to be useful. Once you have that language, you can actually notice it. Um, mm. So I think that's extremely valuable. Um, I imagine that you actually probably radiate mindfulness, to be honest with you, like that, that uh, <laughs> people are more mindful when they're around uh, probably you and the environments that you create, I would assume. But um, I, I try and remind myself wherever possible, to, to be an example of mindfulness. And if yeah. I can't be an example of mindfulness, then I can be a warning, all right? So yeah, this is okay. what happens if you're not mindful, right? Okay. So you better practice mindfulness. <laughs> nice, yeah. And I, I was thinking as you were saying that as well, like I've got um, three-year-olds, you know, I don't have, I have, and I haven't been a teenager for a while, but I can imagine teenagers, everyone likes to jump on teenagers these days, but probably always. But um, I can imagine the situation where you're a teenager, maybe you're in like year 11, you're at home doing your homework. You might be in the kitchen amongst a busy family. You maybe have a laptop. The TV's on in the background. You have an iPad on the side. You have an iPhone on the other side. You've got a headphone with one song in one ear. 
you know, are we getting less and less mindful? Mm. Yes. And especially for kids these days, <clears throat> are being driven to distraction, literally. Driven to Technology distraction. is a, a wonderful servant if it's used well. It's a tyrannical master um, if we don't use it well. And um, so not only in distraction, but all the other stuff that comes with a lot of social media, you know, of, um, constant comparisons and bullying and various things that, that can happen when it's not being used appropriately. Um, but in terms of distraction, uh, with every measure, it seems we're getting more distracted. And, you know, just creating, like for a student, creating a, an environment that makes it easy to be mindful. Mm. Well, if you want to get some deep study done, you want to get plenty of value out of your time, then turn off the notifications. You know, if you've got a smartwatch, then put it away. If you've got a, you know, a smartphone, <clears throat> well, this is not the time to have it out. Get the phone, put it, turn it off, get it out of sight. Even better, open up the window and throw that phone as far as you can, all right? So, you know, if you get the spin right, that can go quite a long way. So, but make it easy because if that phone, and, and research shows, university students, if that phone, especially if it's sitting on the desk, even if it's face down and off, that just the fact that it's there will reduce performance in every way you measure it. Really? So it's not just about cultivating mindfulness, it's being conscious of the things that, undermine our ability or or Amishi Jha, a neuroscientist in the States, talks about things that degrade attention. Mm. And uh, technology is doing that increasingly. And um, so these are some of the real challenges for people of any age, but I think for kids growing up these days, um, the unfettered use of this, uh, it's turning into the tyrannical master. Wow. Yeah. And I, I can imagine that the, the pendulum starts to swing because I think we've you know, people like myself say that we've got three-year-olds. We've seen now like a, a half a generation or whatever you would call that little that little moment in time. We've seen maybe some of the deleterious uh, effects mm. of, you know, like you say, unfettered access because it's such a new technology. And um, I kind of feel like we didn't, I didn't necessarily have that. I was probably on the, the just at the, I just missed it probably. And so um, I think we're now starting to see that. So I'm sure the pendulum does swing back in some way. Um I've really, really appreciated your time, um, Craig. This has been fantastic. I just have one last question, if that's okay, if you if you have the time, which is really the separation or the relationship between, you know, re religion and um, and mindfulness. I know I, I saw there's a couple of mentions of prayer in your work, but also there's obviously sort of more um, formal Buddhist practices. Does I guess my question is, does it work better when there's a religion attached to it? Mm. Yeah, well, I learned mindfulness not from Buddhist teachings or, or or any other teachings for that matter, just being a curious teenager, looking at mind and body and just being interested to understand and notice what's going on. So I kind of feel like I, I taught it to myself and applied things. Later on, when I looked at what some of the world's great wisdom traditions had to say, oh, they were under this stuff a long time ago. <laughs> but this is not new. And uh, these discoveries I've made have been not only discovered, but very well described. So it took the understanding to quite a, a deeper level because practitioners who've been applying this stuff for a long time describe things. So, so then, you know, it became really a philosophical interest as well. And I perhaps distinguish, you know, wisdom traditions from faith traditions. Sure, you know, sure. In, in wisdom, you question things, you experiment, you explore, you want to understand, not just take something on face value just because somebody says. And um, and mind you, that's not to um, deny the importance of, of faith and so on, which can be very important as well, but just got to be careful what we put our faith in, as it were. But from a kind of an inquiry point of view, um, then, you know, the, the wisdom traditions have got a lot to say about this. And so, so not teaching religion per se, but teaching it embedded within the wisdom tradition. Most people I would see in, um, you know, students, for example, are not interested in getting onto a, any kind of wisdom path or spiritual path or anything else, but they are interested in practical solutions for, mm. you know, real world problems. So these generic skills help make it applicable 
in language in a format that that makes sense, etc. Um, and for those who want to take it further and understand more deeply, then okay, well, you know, explore more deeply and and take it take it further. And so they might be the ones who might explore the wisdom traditions and um, these these uh, you know great teachings that have been around for a very long time. Um, so, but so we don't teach it really. I don't teach it as a uh, as a Buddhist thing because that's not how I discovered it myself. And and that's not for a moment uh, to um, ignore the enormous and most substantial contribution that people inspired by the Buddhist tradition have made to this whole area. You know, and the development of things that we call MBCT and MBSR, etc. John Kabat-Zinn and and Richie Davidson and and and, and so many wonderful uh, people that have been very much inspired by the Buddhist tradition. Yeah. But it's not a Buddhist thing. I wrote an article, um, you know, Mindfulness, is it Buddhist or Universal? Um, that was published in a journal um, last year. But my my point is that it's universal. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the present moment, it's not like, oh, well, you know, you have a present moment if you're Buddhist, but you don't if you're not, um, or paying attention uh, or waking up or non-attachment. These are very universal things, but there's a very... Um, well, I'd say brilliant elaboration of it in in a lot of those Buddhist teachings um, for those who want to look at them. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you very much, Craig. I'm I'm really conscious of your time, and and I just yeah, this has been so enjoyable and so um, educational. I guess to to be honest with you, I've learned quite a lot in this quick hour. So thank you so much for your time. Um, please enjoy the rest of your day, and um, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure talking and thank you for your questions as well. Uh, it's great to have a conversation that uh, roams wide. Yeah, absolutely. And I think my wife will definitely be using this episode as a weapon against me, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, you and that's... edit it down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right. What an episode. Um Please join me in thanking Craig once again for his time and for lending his serious, serious, serious expertise on the show. Um, informal versus formal mindfulness, I think he's taking this to another level and I'm really excited to see where this goes. I guess a question out there when I'm asking for feedback, how will you try and be more informally mindful during the week? I think phones might have a big thing to do with it, uh, particularly for me, so... I'm going to make sure when I'm working, I'll put that phone away, turn off notifications. Probably shouldn't have needed to hear from an expert to know to do that, but here we are. Um, share this episode with someone in your life that you think would find some benefit from it. Um, please send feedback and like, subscribe, and share this out. Thank you.